Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now tonight we have Juan Gabriel Vasquez joining us. Um, his previous books include the International Impact Dublin Literary Award winner and national bestseller, The Sound of Things Falling, as well as the award-winning Reputations, The Informers, The Secret His- History of Constant Costa Guana. Did I say that right? Yes. Thank you. Um, and the story, I don't think I've ever pronounced it out loud. Um, and the story collection, Lovers on All Saints Day. His novels have been published in 28 languages and after 16 years in France, Belgium, and Spain, he now lives in Bogota. And um, we're here to talk about The Shape of the Ruins, uh, which San Francisco Chronicle says is teeming with crackpots and idealists, doomed leaders, and those who would average their deaths, who would avenge their deaths. Sorry, it's been a long day. This is a novel with a surplus of interesting characters. Its plot, meanwhile, is constantly churning. Readers will think that they can foresee what's coming next and will find that they're wrong. Here he is. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. It's a pleasure to be here again at Skylight. I'm going to leave my chocolate bar somewhere. Um, so I'm very excited to be reading in America from this book, which has some things to do with America. And uh, one of those things is the books that helped me write it. Um, so as a Colombian politician once said, before speaking, I would like to say a few words. Uh, this is, it's very important for you to know how the novel was born in order to understand what I'm going to read. Um, In the year 2005, I was spending the European summer, I was living in Barcelona, I was spending the summer in Colombia, in my country, um, when my twin girls were born prematurely, really prematurely. They were born at six and a half months. So that meant a lot of trouble, a lot of, a lot of anxiety uh, for us as parents. And it also meant that, I had, that we had to spend a lot of time at the hospital with them um, while they recover in their uh, incubators. So during that time, I meet this surgeon, this uh, very uh, famous Bogota surgeon who knew about my interest in this single political murder that shaped the 20th century in Colombia, the murder of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, liberal politician um, whose death in 1948 created this sort of small revolution, small in uh, scope because it only lasted for three days, but big in consequences. 3,000 people were killed. Um, And it, it really split the 20th history 20th century um, history in Colombia in two. So I have always been obsessed with this murder. I've written about it in several pages of several books, but I had never written a whole book about it. And this guy invites me to his home, and he, uh, he opens this drawer, and he takes out a vertebra that belonged to Jorge Eliezer Gaitan with one of the with the hole of one of the bullets that killed him. So 
um, he gave me time to faint, to recover, and then to say, I'm going to write a book about this. Um, this is the book. So as the book opens, we are introduced to a character who um, turns out to be the main character in the book. But the important thing to know is that the narrator is Juan Gabriel Vasquez. The narrator is um, a Colombian writer who shares my biography, shares the fact that he's having twins. He has written the books that I have written. Um, it was a choice that I had to do given that this thing had actually happened to me. I had, I had had in my hands the bones of these dead Colombian politicians. And so the, um, the incidents uh, of this in my life was so strong that I decided I couldn't write about it behind a mask. I couldn't make, make up a narrator to tell the story. And I chose to do it from my own character. So the first chapter is called The Man Who Spoke of Inauspicious Dates. The last time I saw him, Carlos Carballo was climbing with difficulty into a police van, his hands cuffed behind his back and his head hunched down between his shoulders, while a news ticker running along the bottom of the screen reported the reason for his arrest, the attempted theft of the search suit of an assassinated politician. It was a fleeting image spotted by chance on one of the late night newscasts after the loud-mouthed assault of the commercials and shortly before the sports update. And I remember having thought that thousands of television viewers would be sharing that moment with me, but only I could say, without lying, that I wasn't surprised. He was arrested in front of the former home of liberal leader Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, now a museum, where armies of visitors arrive every year to come into brief and vicarious contact with the most famous political crime in Colombian history. The search suit was the one Gaitan was wearing on April 9, 1948, the day Juan Roa Sierra, a young man with vague Nazi sympathies, who had flirted with Rosicrucian sects and often, and often conversed with the Virgin Mary, awaited him as he left his office and shot him four times at close range in the middle of a busy street in the broad daylight of a Bogota lunchtime. The bullets left holes in the jacket and the waistcoat, and people who know that visit the museum just to see those dark, empty circles. Carlos Carballo, it might have been thought, was one of those visitors. All the newspapers the next day referred to the frustrated robbery. All of them were surprised, hypocritically shocked, that the myth of Gaitan still awoke such passions 66 years after the events. And some made the comparison for the umpteenth time to the Kennedy assassination, the 50th anniversary of which had been marked the previous year without the slightest diminution of its power to fascinate. All of them remembered, in case anyone had forgotten, the unforeseen consequences of the assassination, the city set on fire by the populist protests, the snipers stationed on the rooftops firing indiscriminately, and the country at war in the years that followed. The same information was repeated everywhere with more or less subtlety and more or less melodrama, sometimes accompanied by images, including those of the furious crowd which had just lynched the murderer, dragging his half-naked corpse along the cobblestones of Carrera Septima in the direction of the presidential palace. But on no media outlet 
could you find a speculation, as gratuitous as it might be, about the reasons a man who was not mad might have for deciding to break into a glass case in a guarded house and make off with the bullet-ridden clothing of a famous dead man. Nobody posed that question, and our media memory gradually began to forget Carlos Carballo. Swamped by everyday violence, which doesn't even uh, give time to feel discouraged, Colombians allowed that inoffensive man to fade away, like a shadow at twilight. Nobody thought of him again. It's his story in part that I want to tell. I can't say that I knew him, but I had a level of intimacy with him that only those who have tried to deceive each other achieve. However, to begin this story, I must first speak of the man who introduced us. For what happened to me afterward has meaning only if I first tell of the circumstances in which Francisco Benavides came into my life. Yesterday, walking around places in central Bogota where some of the events that I'm going to explore in this report happened, trying to make sure once more that nothing has escaped me in its painstaking reconstruction, I found myself wondering aloud how I've come to know these things I might be better off not knowing, how I had come to spend so much time thinking about these dead people, living with them, talking to them, listening to their regrets and regretting, in turn, not being able to do anything to alleviate their suffering. And I was astonished that I had all started with a few casual words, casually spoken by Dr. Benavides, inviting me to his house. At that moment, I thought I was accepting in order not to deny someone my time who had been generous with his own at a difficult moment. So the visit would simply be one more commitment out of the many insignificant things that use up our lives. I couldn't know how mistaken I'd been, for what happened that night put in motion a frightful mechanism that would only end with this book. This book, written in atonement for crimes that although I did not commit them, I have ended up inheriting. <clears throat> so now I move ahead to the actual night, the actual evening where uh, and when I met Carlos Carballo. So we're introduced to each other by Francisco Benavides, um, and then this is the surgeon, and then Benavides leaves um, for a while. We start talking, and I realize um, at once that this guy is a very interesting guy, very contradictory, very, very strange in his own fascinating way, but also very irritating. He begins to spew conspiracy theories about everything, about 9-11, about uh, how Lady, Lady Diana was murdered, in his opinion. Um, and I'm a little bit stressed out because of my daughter's being born early and the whole situation. So I, I snap at him and a, a, a situation of tension is created. This is the moment in which Benavides comes back and he realizes that, that there's tension and he tries to diffuse that tension by mentioning a relative of mine. He mentions Jose Maria Villarreal, who was my great uncle, who was a, a conservative politician in Colombia in the time when Gaitan was killed. And so, for some reason, 
they know about this, about this relationship um, between this politician and myself. And so obviously I ask, how is it that you two know of him? How wouldn't we know of him, said Carlos Carballo. He was no longer hunched over. His voice had recovered its previous vivacity. Our clash had never taken place. Francisco, bring the book. Bring the book and we'll show him. Not now, man. We're in the middle of a dinner party. Bring the book, please. Do it for me. What book? I asked. Bring it and we'll show him, said Carballo. Benavides made a comical grimace, like a child who has to run an errand, which is really a whim of his parents. He disappeared into the next room and returned in a flash. It hadn't taken him long to find the book in question. I recognized the red slipcase long before the doctor handed the book to Carballo. It was living to tell the tale. The memoir Gabriel Garcia Marquez had published three years earlier, copies of which had then flooded all Colombian bookshops and a good part of those elsewhere. Carballo took the book and began to flip through, looking for the page he was interested in, and before he found it, my memory and instincts had already suggested what he would show me. I should have known. We were going to talk about April 9, 1948. Yes, here it is, said Carballo. He handed me the book and pointed out the passage. It was on page 352 of that edition, the same one I had at home in Barcelona. In the chapter in question, Garcia Marquez was remembering the Gaitan assassination, which had caught him in Bogotá, studying law with no vocation for it, and living from hand to mouth in Apension, on Carrera Octava, downtown, less than 200 steps from the place where Roa Sierra fired those four fateful shots. Speaking of the riots, the fires, and the violent and generalized chaos that the assassination provoked, as well as the efforts the conservative government took to maintain control, Garcia Marquez wrote, in the neighboring department of Boyacá, famous for its historic liberalism and its harsh conservatism, the governor, Jose Maria Villarreal, not only had repressed local disturbances at the start, but was dispatching better armed troops to subdue the capital. Did you know about this, Vasquez? Benavides asked me. Did you know your uncle was mentioned in here? I knew, yes, I said. But we never talk about politics. No, you never talked about April 9? Not that I recall. Well, there were stories. Oh, that's interesting, said Carballo. Isn't it, Francisco? We're interested in this, aren't we? Yes, we are, said Benavides. Tell us. Let's hear, said Carballo. Well, I don't know. There are several stories, I said. Uh, there was, for instance, that time when a liberal friend visited at dinner time. He talked to my uncle and he told him, uh, I need you to go find somewhere else to sleep. Why, asked my uncle, and the liberal friend just told him, because tonight we're going to kill you. He told me things like that about the attempts on his life, that's all. And about April 9, asked Carvalho, didn't he ever talk to you about April 9? No, I said, he gave a few interviews, uh, I think nothing else. But he must have known tons of things, no? What kinds of things, I asked. Well, he was governor of Boyacá that day. Everybody knows that. 
he received information and that's why he sent the police to Bogota. One imagines that he would have continued finding out what was going on. He would have, had, he would have asked questions, he would have talked to the government, isn't that true? And over the course of his long life, he would have talked to many people, one imagines, he would have known a lot of things that happened, how to put it, out of the public eye. Well, I don't know, I said. He never told me. I see, said Carballo. Look, and did your uncle never talk to you about the elegant man? He wasn't looking at me when he asked me this question. I remember well because I, for my part, looked toward Benavides and found his gaze absent or maybe evasive. I found him making an effort to appear distracted as if the conversation had suddenly stopped interesting him. I later realized that it interested him more than ever in that second. But I had no reason to suspect hidden intentions in that apparently casual dialogue. What elegant man, I said. Carballo's fingers started leafing back through the pages of Living to Tell the Tale again. They soon found what they were looking for. Read this, Carballo told me, putting the tip of his index finger on top of a word from here. After killing Gaitan, Garcia Marquez wrote, Juan Roa Sierra, the assassin, was chased by a furious mob and had no choice but to hide in the Granada drugstore to avoid being lynched. Some policemen and the owner of the drugstore were in there with him, so Roa Sierra must have thought himself safe. Then the unexpected began to happen. A tall man wearing an irreproachable gray suit, as if he were going to a wedding, incited the crowd. And his words were so effective, and his presence was so authoritative, that the owner of the pharmacy raised the iron shutters and let the bootblacks force their way in, hitting out with their wooden crates and dragged away the terrified assassin. Right there, in the middle of Carrera Septima, under the eyes of the police and at the urgings of the elegant, well-dressed man, they beat him to death. The elegant man, his, in his irreproachable gray suit, began to shout, to the Palacio. Garcia Marquez wrote, 50 years later, my memory is still fixed on the image of the man who seemed to incite the crowd outside the pharmacy. And I have not found him in any of the countless testimonies I have read about that day. I had seen him up close with his expensive suit, his alabaster skin, and the millimetric control of his actions. He attracted my attention so much that I kept an eye on him until he was picked up by two new Akar as soon as the assassin's corpse was dragged away, and from then on he seemed to be erased from historical memory. Even mine, until many years later, in my days as a reporter, when it occurred to me that the man had managed to have a false assassin killed in order to protect the identity of the real one. To protect the identity of the real one, re uh, repeated Carballo at the same time as I did, so that we sounded like a bad choir in the middle of the racket of the party. How strange, don't you think? Strange, yes, I said. It's Garcia Marquez talking, not any old idiot. And he says it in his memoir. Don't tell me it's not strange. Don't tell me there's not something to this guy, to the fact that he's been swallowed up by oblivion. 
Of course there's something to it, I said. A still unresolved murder, that's all. A murder surrounded by conspiracy theories. It doesn't surprise me that this interests you, Carlos. I've already seen that this is your world, but I don't know if you should latch on to a novelist's isolated paragraph as if it were the revealed truth, even if he is Garcia Marquez. Carballo, more than disappointed, was annoyed. He took a step back. There are disagreements so strong that we feel assaulted and little keeps us from raising our fists like boxers. Closed the book and without yet putting it down or back in its red slipcase, crossed his hands behind his back. I see, he said in a sarcastic tone. And what do you think, Francisco? How can I get out of this world of mine where we're all crazy? Now, Carlos, don't get offended. What he meant was, I know very well what he meant to say. He already said it, that I'm an idle speculator. No, no, forgive me for that, I said. That's not what, but there are those who think the opposites. Right, Francisco? There are those who can see where others are blind. Not in your world, Vasquez. In your world, there are only coincidences. It's a coincidence that the towers collapsed when they shouldn't have. It's a coincidence that a man was front, in front of the Granada drugstore able to get it opened without having to ask. It's a coincidence that your uncle's name appears 14 pages after that incident. Okay, now I really don't understand, I said. What does my uncle have to do with this? Well, I don't know said Carballo, and neither do you because you never asked, because you never talked to your uncle about April 9, because you don't know whether your uncle might have known the man who made them open the Granada drugstore. Wouldn't you like to know, Vasquez? Wouldn't you like to know who that guy was who had Juan Roa Sierra killed in front of everyone and then hopped into a fancy car and disappeared forever? We're talking about the most serious thing to ever happen to your country, and you seem not to care. A relative of yours participated in that historic moment and might have known who the guy was. Everybody knew everyone back then, and you seem not to give a shit. You're all the same, brother. You go live somewhere else and forget about the country. Or maybe not, now that I think about it. Maybe you don't forget anything, but know very well what happened. You know very well that your uncle organized the Bogota police. You know very well that the police force later turned into an assassination squad. What do you feel when you think of that? Do you want to protect your family? Do you worry about being well informed? Have you worried or don't you give a shit? Do you think that it has nothing to do with you, that it all happened a quarter of a century before you were born? Yes, that's probably what you think, that this thing is for others to worry about other people's problems, not yours. Well, you know what? I'm glad. Destiny has forced your children to be born here, has forced your wife to give birth here. I'm glad of that. So your country can teach you a lesson, teach you not to be so selfish. So maybe your daughters can end up giving you a lesson on what it means to be Colombian. That is, if they're born properly, right? If they don't die right there, like sickly kittens, that would be a lesson too, now that I think of it. What happened next, I remember through a mist. I do remember that in the next second, I no longer had the glass of whiskey in my hand. 
In the next, I realized I'd thrown it at Carballo's face, and I remember very well the crash of the glass as it shuttered against the floor, and I also remember Carballo on his knees, covering his face with his hands, bleeding through his broken nose, and the blood staining his cravat, red on red, dark red on the brilliant red of a matador spear, and also running down the edge of his left hand, dirtying the cuff of his shirt and his watch strap, which I remember being of white fabric and therefore more vulnerable to blood stains than a leather one. I remember Carballo's shouts of pain, or maybe fear. There are people who are afraid of the sight of blood. I also remember Benavides taking me by the arm with a firm grip, full of authority and decisiveness, and guiding me through the living room, the occupants of which parted to allow us to pass between incredulous or openly censorious stairs, and out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of Estella, my hostess, running toward the injured man with a bag of ice in her hand, and another woman, maybe the housekeeper, carrying a broom and dustpan with an irritated or impatient expression on her face. I had time to think that Benavides was throwing me out of his house. I had time to regret it, yes, to regret the end of a relationship that wasn't a friendship but might have become one. And in a flash of guilt, I imagined the open door and the shove out of the house. I felt tired and maybe I'd, ha I'd had one drink too many, though I don't think so. But through my hazy understanding, I was prepared to take responsibility for my actions. So in my head, I began to rapidly sketch out excuses or justifications. And I think I'd begun speaking them when I realized Benavides was not leading me to the front door, but rather to the staircase. Go upstairs, open the first door on the left, lock the door behind you and wait for me there, he said, placing a key ring in my hand. Don't open it for anyone else. I'll be up as soon as I can. I think we have a lot to discuss. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm all yours for any questions. It's all so clear, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the reasons the novel <coughs> takes the shape it does is because it was also born um, out of an obsession. Everybody in the, in the novel is obsessed. Uh, Carlos Carballo is obsessed because he thinks he has found this, uh, these points in common between this murder, the murder of Gaitan, and another one that happened in 1914, uh, which at the time seemed impossible um, for Colombians to accept the murder of another liberal political leader um, who you know, even if you don't know, you know him because he is, Rafael Uribe Uribe is the model Garcia Marquez um, used to create the character of Aureliano Buendia in 100 Years of Solitude. Um, so he's obsessed with that, with finding points in common, with the, the idea that he has found a truth, a hidden truth behind these two murders. And the character of Juan Gabriel Vázquez is obsessed with Carlos Carballo. So everybody is obsessed with everybody else. Everybody's investigating a, a mystery or secrets of their own. <coughs> but the, 
The big question, the question that every, every novel for me begins with a question. And the question that took shape in my head um, did so during these years that I was telling you about before, this moment in which um, I was spending half of my day with this crazy doctor who had the bones of uh, victims of political violence in his home, and half of my day with my daughters who were recovering in their incubators. So in those, in those days, there was something that began to worry me. What connection is there between the two things? I mean, is there a way in which violence is passed generation after generation and it will reach my daughters who have just been born here? Um, how can I protect them from this heritage, from this legacy of violence? Um, because I've, I've always known that these crimes has, have shaped my life and I was born 25 years after um, Gaitan, after the murder of Gaitan. So this idea that violence was, could shape the lives of my daughters who had just been born, that, that uh, it was violence, violent events that remain mm, in the dark, that remain unexplained, uh, unsolved, are able to traverse generations and uh, shape lives many years later. Um, this was the question that was at, at, at the root of the novel. The novel, I began to write the novel because of this, because I wanted to know this. Um, and then it became, um, it started discussing things that I hadn't foreseen. Um, conspiracy theories, for instance. Carballo is a firm believer in conspiracy theories. I published this in 2015, uh, many years before the idea of conspiracy theories took took the, the took up the whole room in our conversations as it is doing today but um, at that point in that moment the idea of looking at the world through these stories that are that are false but um, that uh, in a way make up for the lies of history as Carballo thinks at least this became a huge subject of the novel, one of the big themes. Um, so there you go, this is the book. It's a, it's a book about uh, obsessions, about history, about how we deal with history. It's a book that does what uh, to me is the great advantage of writing novels. It mixes genres, so you get autobiography, but also a historical novel, but also a thriller. There's a thriller in the middle of the book. Um, Mixing all these possibilities that narrative gives us to try to explore these uh, these difficult issues. So there you go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And no. No, uh, um, because I realized from the very beginning that uh, it wasn't possible to reach a conclusion. This is one of, of those events that will never have a, a truth, uh, a, a indisputable truth attached to it. Uh, 
But I do think that there are corners of this event that remain in the dark and that literature is one of the ways we have to illuminate those, those corners. And that exploring this, this murder tells us a lot about, first of all, about what it means to be Colombian in the 20th century, about our history, our history of violence, but also about the ways in which this kind of violence is created in societies. The, uh, Carlos Carballo, for instance, is obsessed with the idea that there are many points in common between the murder of Gaitan and the murder of Kennedy. For instance, he, he clipped the photograph of the moment when Lee Harvey Oswald is killed, right? And he underlines the words of the, uh, of the, the, paper, the paper published that day. Um, words that he feels could apply to the murder of Gaitan too. Um, this is because the real character, uh, the, the real life character that, um, that I used, if that's the word, to build one of the characters in the novel, was himself very interested in the murder of Kennedy. He was a forensic doctor, a very prestigious forensic doctor in the 60s in Colombia. And he came to the US to study ballistics and uh, criminal sciences and etc. And while he was here, Kennedy was killed. And he immediately began to develop this, this personal theory, having read nothing, not even the Warren report. His conviction was that it was impossible that only one shooter killed Kennedy. And he took these notes, fascinating. Um, and so this is, it's one of the points um, it's one of the subplots, if you will, of them, of the book. Yes. You talked a little bit about this accusation of your kind of not connecting with your Colombian roots, or like leaving Colombia and not really being like so representative. Oh, Carballo talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. He so accused I'm, me. Yes. Exactly. So I'm kind of curious, like, when do you feel more Colombian? Do you feel more Colombian when you are in Colombia, or when you're living abroad, and how do you like stay connected? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, definitely, uh, I do feel more connected after after this book, which is like a, like like a summer of all my Colombian anxieties and preoccupations and obsessions. But the thing with me is that I lived for 16 years abroad. I left Colombia without having published one single book, and I went back just six years um, ago. And. Uh, during those years abroad, I wrote one book, which I consider to be my first book, a book of short stories about Belgium and France, and it's this one over here. And after that, a thousand pages about Colombia. And I've never been able to leave the country in terms of my imagination after that. The only book that I wrote that has nothing to do with Colombia is the first one. After that, I just fell into that pit. Um, because there are so many dark places. And countries with dark places produce fiction. This is what we do when we don't know what happened in a, uh, when, when, when we realize that history is incomplete or um, has been distorted 
or has lied to us, um, we produce novels. Um, and, um, and this is, this is, for instance, one of the reasons that American books helped me shape this one. Novels such as Don Delilo's Libra or uh, some novels by Philip Roth, they were very useful to try to find my way th uh, through these public histories that become private stories. Um, I wrote about Colombia for 16 years from abroad. And in those, pl in those moments, writing books was what kept me in, in contact with my country. Yeah. Yes. How did you feel about writing yourself as a character? How did I? How did you feel about writing yourself as a character? Well, yes, it was not an easy thing to do. I never, <coughs> you always write yourself into the characters. That's unavoidable. But you always use a mask. I, I used a mask to write uh, the character of Antonio Yamara, who is the narrator of The Sound of Things Falling. Um, there's a lot of me in there. There's a lot, a lot of me in the narrator of The Informers, Gabriel Santoro. Um, but creating in words your own life in this confessional mode, trying to be truthful, I, I I did not make things up. It is the most um, uh, frank and direct book I've written in that sense. Um, talking about my daughters remembering those days which were difficult, uh, it was fun. It was very difficult, very difficult, exhausting. There were some, some days in which I wrote one, one paragraph and I was exhausted for the rest of the day emotionally drained. Um, so very interesting, very interesting lesson to learn. Yeah. Yes. Very good, yes. Um, no, because I don't think of the two things in, uh, in the same terms. I think this is fiction, and I think that is lies. And I think one of the... <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, this, is, this is part of my discussion in the book, too. And I think it's a very interesting question because of this. It was part of what I thought. Um, a conspiracy theory is not... Sometimes I think that a conspiracy theory is a novel in which the narrator believes everything he says. And the novel is like a big conspiracy theory. Uh, the difference is that the narrator is uh, conscious that he is making things up. Um, what we try to do when we write novels like this is to make up for the shortcomings of history. That is to say, there are places that uh, official history is not able to illuminate because they don't have the, the proofs, the documents, the knowledge. And it's to those places that fiction goes to say the things that history is not able to say. Right? Um, there was this this German romantic poet, Novalis, who said, uh, novels arise out of the shortcomings of history. Um, this is what happens with novels about history as I understand them. We write about those places that are out of reach for all the other kinds of narratives that we have invented as human beings, journalism, historiography, the essay, documentaries, whatever. Where those places can't go, 
novel scan. And this is the one of the nice things, I think. I guess the justifications to write fiction. No, no, I wouldn't dare, no. I know it's not easy to get books translated and sold on the, um, you know, the American Book Translation. Um, exactly, yes. You do know 3% of books published in, in America and the UK are translations. And that includes, uh, I don't know, users' manuals from... So yes, it's, it's difficult. No, well, um, I've always had the same translator. She's an extraordinary... She's an artist, she's a genius. I mean, she, she reads my mind. Uh, Anne McLean, she translated my first book published into English, that was The Informers, 2008. And, um, and she knows how to do on the page everything that I do, and that's a fantastic privilege. Translation is an amazing thing when you, when you think about it. I mean, we, I can say that my m moral view of the world was shaped by Tolstoy, and I don't read a word of Russian. So all the words that I've read and that, that have shaped my worldview were chosen by somebody else than Tolstoy. But we, we just passed that magic over. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's fundamental. I mean, without translation, I wouldn't be able to speak about uh, the, the politics of my country, for instance, because the two words that I need to speak about my country are translations for, from the Greek, politicians and idiots. <laughs> two words translated from the Greek. So, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. You've all very, been very kind. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.